Well, hello there, and welcome to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast. I am your host, Michael Blank. I am super excited that you're here. If you haven't done so already, grab the replay recordings from DealMaker Live a couple of weeks ago. You can grab them at dealmakerliveevent.com, where we have all aspects of apartment building investing from the experts in the industry, all compressed together into three days. Actually, it's a lot less than that uh, in recorded, and you can watch it on demand, uh, and you have forever access to it. So check that out at dealmakerliveevent.com to grab that recording. So today on the show, I have an old friend of mine, one of my first uh, coaching students I ever had several years ago, Bruce Frazier's on, on the show. And his trajectory has been just amazing, going from zero to 1,600 units in just a short period of time. And a really great guy, very deliberate, conservative, but still gets stuff done. So he describes his journey from he just starting out to getting his first deal done, which then by the time he closed that deal, he had the second deal on a contract. Again, the law of the first deal in action. So we talk about that, some of the challenges he had to overcome. And also for you guys and gals who want to think about scaling a portfolio, what are some of the elements that he had to go through to scale the business? You know, Who did he have to hire? What did he have to think about? So we talk a lot about that uh, scaling aspect as well. So let's get going with the show here. Before we get going, um, if you are interested in investing passively with us, our investment firm is called Nighthawk Equity. Check us out at nighthawkequity.com and click the join button to join our investment club. And if you do that, uh, you can fill out a quick form and schedule a call with us. We'd love to have a conversation, see if investing is right for you. And then we can share with you some of our upcoming opportunities. And we will have, and currently already do, an amazing set of opportunities that we are uncovering during this this uh, uncertain, but also exciting time as well. So check that out, nighthawkequity.com. And let's, uh, let's get right here into the interview with Bruce Frazier, who is the CEO of Elkhorn Capital Partners. You're listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast, where we'll talk about all aspects of buying apartment buildings with a special focus on raising money from others. And now, your host, Michael Block. Bruce, welcome to the show today. Hey, Michael. Glad to be here. Yeah, so uh, you and I have been working uh, on this for probably several years to get you on the show. And what's really cool <laughs> about this is that you were you were one of my literally first uh, mentoring st- coaching students before I even had a coaching program. I, when I first met you, I, I wasn't exactly sure how to, you know, how to, because you were kind of quiet. You'd show up on all the calls. You know, I'm like, I'm not sure about this Bruce guy. I don't, th- I don't think he's going to do anything. He just showed up. And then all of a sudden, you close this 138-unit like deal within several months later. And now you basically have as many units as we do, and you've just kind of crushed it. <laughs> and um, and it's been an amazing story, man. So it's great to have you here. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate it. Yeah, no, I, I remember that time. It was it was years back, and uh, I remember telling you what I wanted to accomplish. And you know, you you hear that from a lot of people, I'm sure. And you're like, yeah, yeah, sure. And I think I said I wanted to own a thousand doors or something like that. And you know, we already own more than that now, which is which is funny. And and I, you know, just before we started this, I was telling you I want a five exit at least. You know, so fingers crossed, I guess. But no, I uh, my background's a little bit different than a lot of people's. I think that come to this. You know, I'm not not coming out of the corporate world or anything like that. I former hedge fund manager that uh, has converted, so to speak. You know, I uh, we. We did very. I did very well in the hedge fund. You know, we were uh, we sidestepped the financial crisis and uh, we're at our all time highs when the market was at the lows in the, in I guess first quarter of '09. But um, even being good at it in the equity markets, I just think there are better ways to do things. And uh, you know, so I spend a ton of my time now in multifamily and and growing the portfolio and what we do. 
Yeah, well, I mean, what was it? I mean, you're, you're right. It, 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 I mean, we've studied this a little bit. There seems to be a giant chasm between Wall Street and, I don't know, Main Street, both in the way the language is used and just the way money works in those two in those two areas. Why, why did you try to make a transition from what you were doing and you were successful at what you were doing? What was the problem with that? And what, why were you start looking at real estate as a, as a, as a solution? Well, you know, I, I still I still oversee a bunch of money in the public markets, so I can't say there's there's a total problem with it. I just think that there's several things I would would highlight. One is, you know, if you look at the S and P five hundred, because most people don't aren't active traders like me. I mean, I'm, I'm an options trader and, and trade derivatives, which is horrifying sounding, but it's it's actually we do it to be very conservative. But most people are just seeing the S and P or something that tracks the S and P five hundred. And if you look at the S and P for the last twenty years, the average annual return is roughly two and a half percent. If you held through that whole period, that's not even keeping up with inflation. And that's no fun, especially for all the stress that you have to take and the gut wrenching moments. You know, the uh, I, I call it the um, the corner bakery standard. You, you know me well enough to know I have a, an iced tea addiction. Uh, I so don't do drink I. coffee. <laughs> I drink a lot of iced tea, but so, some mornings I would stop at, at corner bakery, grab iced tea, and I would be you know trading on my phone or reading research or seeing what. Mario Draghi said overnight at the ECB, something like that. It's just terribly stressful, you know, on my third huge cup of caffeine. And I'd look over and there would be a table full of guys or, or, or women having a Bible study or just, just calmly enjoying the moment together. And, you know, I looked at that. I'm like, that's the life I want. I certainly have a successful career in, in the financial markets. Like I said, we're, I'm better at it than a lot of people are. It doesn't mean I'm the best, but we, we certainly navigated uh, some tough periods well. But even so, I just, I like multifamily because it's, I can back up a little bit. I've done a lot of other real estate endeavors. You know, we, uh, I had a bunch of real estate prior to 08. And because the research I was doing in, in the hedge fund, uh, we actually ended up selling everything in late 07, uh, which, you know, worked out really nicely. But I uh, started investing again in 2010 and you know, did some, some single family, did some fix and flips, did some, some small income properties tax lien sales, um, owner finance, all, all kinds of hard money lending, all kinds of things. But you know, you're having to turn over your money so frequently that it's still a ton of work. And multifamily was a place that you could just park your money for a long period of time. We, we underwrite things for an indefinite hold. When, when we buy something, we, we want to own it. We're not looking to flip it in a year or two. Uh, th those opportunities do come up and, and we take advantage of them. But we're generally, you know, these things are too hard to find uh, good quality ones and, and to, to get them on the right track because we do distress situation acquisitions. And once we have them, you know, that's the time to enjoy it and just uh, to reap the benefits of it. Plus, let me add one more thing the multiplier effect, right? You know, if you look at $100,000 in the equity markets, you can buy $100,000 of assets. I mean, margin aside, but we're just, just most people could only buy $100,000 of assets. You put $100,000 in the multifamily market and you'll buy roughly $500,000 asset. So if you assume both assets appreciate equally 20% each, your $100,000 in the equity markets made you 20 grand, your $100,000 in the multifamily market made you 100 grand. 100 grand is better than 20 grand. So that's why I spend a lot of time on it. <laughs> so that makes a lot of sense. And that's why, why we really love uh, multifamily as, as well. Now, I remember you did this, uh, uh, this 138 unit, I think it was uh, in, I don't know, where was it? Dallas, Oklahoma? It's 134 units, but it was- it Darn was it. In, How did my numbers <laughs> wrong? Close. It was in Fort Worth. It was a $5.7 million acquisition was the first one, I think. 
Now, here's the thing, and, and a lot of people listening and watching this might go, well, Bruce, this guy, he's a hedge fund manager, he's got he's loaded, and you know, he's done some single family house. And 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 the thing I remember you telling me about is you you uh, raised was it two point one or two million dollars for that for that deal? Yeah, that, that sounds about right. And you told me that you didn't use or call any of your existing clients, your financial clients, which means you were kind of sort of starting over from scratch. And and you remember was two point one a stretch for you at the time, or you was that pretty easy for you to do? Well, um, it wasn't something that I thought, oh gosh, this is going to be easy. Yeah, I knew there was going to be some work there. I certainly know how to to deal with investors, and we're we're very uh, cautious with setting expectations and things like that. Just having spent a couple decades in this in the securities world, you're you're always paranoid about regulations and things like that, and and treating other people's money very seriously. But yeah, I had I had people that had invested with me in the hedge fund that uh, weren't. Uh, investors any longer. And, and we, you know, at that point in time, it was just a matter of, you know, definitely wanting to keep the two businesses separate for uh, compliance reasons and, and regulatory reasons. So our Elkhorn Capital Partners is completely separate from that endeavor. Um, and we've, we've always had it that way. But yeah, the first deal, um, I had, a, I did have some experience in real estate, like a lot of people that I think follow you, you know, they've done a few houses or they build a, a portfolio of single families. It's rare to find anybody that has a portfolio larger than 10 single family houses. Just just because it becomes another full-time job and it doesn't really pay you that much on the single family because you just net a little bit on each house. And so um, arguably doing multifamily is less demanding, certainly once it's closed, but you know, getting the deals, getting them over the finish line, it is, it is a lot of work, but it's certainly worth it. But yeah, the first deal I think we bought is 5.7, maybe 5.75. Uh, we raised, I think you're right, I think it was 2.1. And 14 months later, again, we weren't planning to sell it, but somebody uh, came in and offered a 7.9 for it. And uh, we took it, you know, it was, it, we already had the property full, we'd already raised rents, you know, we, we weren't expecting to make that kind of money on that property for a number of years. And so we sold it and went and bought two more. I know. You remember, you put a very, very <laughs> ungodly amount of money in your pocket and got a, I don't know, ungodly return on your coaching, which was awesome. And it's like, you know, don't, you know, it was amazing. And it was a time, you know, mark of the times where the, the market was just, just crazy. But I remember, do you, 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 you do have to hustle to, to raise that money. It's not like yeah. you picked up a couple of calls and the money started pouring in. So 2.1 is a, was a lot of money for you. I, I remember that. You were working. You were sweating a little bit. I remember that. And uh, what impact did the, that first deal have? We talk about the law of the first deal a lot. How was things different or the same for you after you closed that, that first deal? Well, I mean, yeah, I've, I've heard you talk about that. And I think we, um, we closed our second deal just a few months later. I, I already Amazing. had it under, under contract when we closed the first one. Now, yeah. the first one did take us a long time to get done, not because of the capital raise, but it was a Fannie Mae assumption and it was just... Uh, we were dealing with a very difficult servicer and it took a long time, but uh, we finally, you know, we stuck with it. The broker even thanked us for, uh, for sticking with it so long, got it done. And, and a few months later, it was less than six months later, we, we had closed already on our second deal. And uh, again, it was under contract for a while, but there were some, some difficulties with the seller that extended it that far. But uh, you know, we we're averaging now, I would say three or four acquisitions a year. You know, they don't, all come evenly spaced out. Like I like I mentioned, we're distressed. We kind of developed a niche in, in distressed situations, and obviously, this is a distressed 
period for a lot of a lot of people. And uh, so we we have two deals under contract right now. One of them we're closing. Well, actually, when I get off of this, I'm going to go sign paperwork uh, in about an hour on a, on a on a deal that we're closing by uh, the end of the week. And then the other one is is a is a really distressed situation that uh, is going to take a little bit more time to to solve. But yeah, it's it's been uh, we expect to do several more this year in spite of COVID. You know, I think the background in the equity markets and, and that rigor of research and, and analysis, being very thoughtful and, and kind of thinking on your own, so to speak, based on the data that you have, it allows you to not be fearful in periods like this. You know, I mean, if you look at, I mean, Goldman Sachs is one of the groups, you know, a lot of people think they're smartest guys in the room, so to speak. For lack of any, anything better to look at, you look at their uh, GDP forecast. And, uh, you know, obviously there was, there was a stunning drop over the last quarter, unprecedented. Um, I think it was 5%, 4.8% in first quarter and 33% in second quarter. Well, now third quarter, they had been forecasting a 33% increase. But the way the math works, if you, if you decrease 33%, a 33% increase doesn't get you back even, right? Because that's how the math works. And so, but based on their GDP forecast, I think they have the economy getting back to kind of where it was going into this late first, early second quarter next year. Well, you know, in real estate timelines, that's not very long. And so we, uh, we want to take advantage of, of the opportunity right now. That, that sounds very hedge fund manager-esque, I guess, to, you know, other people's misery. But, um, you know, we, we feel like we are helping some people. There, the, the deals that were already kind of distressed and not performing well, uh, going into this, when when COVID happened, those people became much more realistic on their pricing on assets, and so we've been able to trade on those. The ones that I think the guys that didn't have to sell, they're not going to sell right now. Yeah, they're not going to sell. They're just withdrew the listing. Now they're you said wait. you developed kind of a niche in the distress. Now we we uh, focus also on value add, but we don't mind taking a stable value add and adding value and get a little little you know agency debt on there. But you really kind of like the the hairy stuff. Why is that? <laughs> the money. Uh, no, <laughs> no, I, I actually view them um, as it sounds crazy, but I view them as as safer because I wouldn't want to necessarily be buying in this in this environment, an asset that's performing perfectly and, and have to pay for a perfectly performing asset and just hope that it stays performing at that level. That, that seems high risk to me because they're, they're, they're always uncertainties and bumps in the road on different things. You just have to underwrite your deal to, to afford that. So, you know, in this environment, I would much rather buy a deal that was at 60 or 70% occupied. And I had a really good understanding of why that was and go in there and move it up to 80 or 90%. And I'm already making money, you know, and I got to buy it at a much lower price. And so the equity created is much more substantive in a, in a very short period of time. So we'll often buy a deal. Now, 80% isn't available out there right now. Uh, the market's very disrupted on the lender side. But four months ago, we would have bought a deal at 80% loan to cost. Uh, loan to cost includes the CapEx spending that you're planning to do. But typically one year in, well, if I look at our portfolio as a whole, I think our, our loan to value is sub 60%, even though we bought them all at 80 LTC roughly. Uh, and that, that, that gives you an idea how much equity or how much value is created. It's not a traditional value add. You know, most, most people, there are a lot of people out there doing value add. And it, it does make a lot of sense. You go in there, reposition the property, upgrade it, make it look nice and, and boost rents $100 to $200 a month or something like that. That can create a lot of, a lot of value. But I, I would argue that at least short term, that, that strategy is probably on hold. I just don't think that 
owners have the leverage to be boosting rents when there's such high unemployment and everything. So that's why I would rather keep rents where they are and turn the bigger dial of occupancy when, you know, with my acquisition. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and it takes, and you're, I, I agree with you, it takes some of the risk out of it if you're not really relying on rent growth, but you're, uh, you're relying on occupancy growth, which you control. And so I do like that a lot. Now, think back a little bit kind of when you got started and what were some of the key challenges that you had to deal with early on? And because I want to talk to you about how you scaled up as well, which, you know, today's problems are different than they were, you know, two, three, whatever years ago. What, what are some of the major challenges that you had that you dealt with, you know, even before the first deal or, or when you just start got it started? Well, I think that's, you know, that's why I reached out to you originally was, you know, I've feel like I'm a fairly sophisticated investor. I'd done a bunch of real estate. Uh, I built some models of my own for multifamily, things like that. I just, you know, the numbers are bigger and you don't want to screw it up, you know? And so that's like, Hey, Michael, <laughs> can you, am I including everything here? Am I, you know, am I missing it? Cause you don't want to buy a, a five or $6 million asset and then realize you forgot to include a certain expense that makes it unprofitable, you know? And so just getting over the uncertainty and, and jumping into it. Actually, that brings me to a point years ago, before I even met you, um, I was at a multifamily conference and, you know, a lot of the conferences, just like your, your dealmaker live would have, you know, their lunches where you have an opportunity to, to, to meet other people in the industry and things like that. And there was this um, older gentleman that was known to be a very large owner of assets here in Dallas. And I, I sat down by him and I just said, Hey, you know, we, we had a good conversation. Then, and then during it, I said, you know, what, what advice would you give somebody that's just starting out? And he looked at me and he said, just buy something, just buy something. He's like, it may be the worst deal that you ever have in your portfolio, but you're going to learn so much from just getting started. And I think that's true. And that's why I'm reconveying it. But I, I know your message is the same. Just get your first deal done. And I think, uh, you know, people learn to fish and then there, it just starts compounding. So I think part of it is, you know, just, you, you have to analyze the deals uh, thoroughly and you have to use realistic assumptions. Don't move your, uh, you know, assumptions to make the deal work. You never want to do that because then it, it, that's not how reality plays out. But people can overanalyze and um, it never actually gets started, you know, and I think, I think that's the biggest waste that I see. I, I just hate to see that, you know, people just you know, worry and worry and worry about doing that first one. So do a smaller one, maybe, you know, yeah, start off yeah. small, just get started and you'll get past it. So I think, I think part of it was getting through the uh, uncertainty of, do I have everything in my model? Am I looking at this right? The, the other piece would be, you know, the deal structures, even back then, you know, I didn't even know what fees people charged or, or how it worked and, and all that. So it's just understanding all the mechanics, which certainly your team, you know, can shorten people's uh, education cycle on that easily. And we talk about a lot about the value of the first deal far exceeds any kind of money you could actually make for right. it. There have been stories of people, operators, syndicators who essentially made no money. Now they made sure that their investors made their money, but they kind of dialed back their fees and distributions just to make the deal work. And, you know, from the outside looking in, you're like, oh, that's too bad. I'm sorry this happened to you. And I'm like, no, it's not. It's awesome. I've actually given that advice to people. I said, you know, yeah. if you can't check all the boxes, partner with somebody, yeah. even if you know, they're obviously going to want to be compensated for whatever roles they're performing. But, but even if they, they don't make anything on that first deal, it's so valuable to have that entry into the club, so to speak, because then they can go do their next deal. Let's talk about growth a little bit. So this is for people who who do want to scale, maybe haven't done a, a deal yet, or maybe they have done a deal yet and they want to start growing their portfolio. You know, a lot of times people, their first milestone is is their first deal and then maybe a second deal or so. But at one point you do start thinking about scaling, growing this thing. And what are some of the things that you had to think about and do 
or you can add another deal or another deal that allowed you to manage what you have now? Yeah, I mean, there's several points on that. Number one is, um, you know, it's time, frankly, you know, you, you have to be very cautious with how you manage your time and how you're spending that time. As an outcropping of that, we, we th- use a third party manager, you know, a lot of people, once you get to the size we are, or, or certainly bigger, you start to consider, well, maybe it makes sense if I bring that in house, I think I could do it a little bit better and save a little bit of money. But for me, you know, that's not even a consideration for us at this point, because if, if I'm, that's a, very demand time demanding part of the business. And if I'm focusing on building that in, in hiring the right people and all that sort of thing, that means I'm not getting deals done. And, you know, I would, I would rather uh, double my portfolio, you know, over the next year or two than build up property management. So part of it's property management. Part of it is, is be aggressive, go big, but be realistic. You know, I've, I've had some people that have gone out there and contracted enormous deals when they, haven't really done any before, or they have, you know, the biggest deal maybe they had before was 70 units, which is a nice size deal, but then they'll go contract a 300 or 400 unit deal before they're really ready to. And they don't really have any idea where they're going to get the capital. They don't have the balance sheet themselves, you know, and so don't get ahead of your skis, but do be aggressive. You know, I mean, because it's just as easy to run 134 units as it is to run a 10 unit you know, if not easier. And so in the numbers work a lot better. What was your first hire, either you know, contractor or employee? You know, at this point, we only have three people and we all kind of have our own roles, I guess. But uh, we have one, one guy that is uh, really focused on the quantitative aspect of researching operations, things like that. Uh, another individual is very good with investor relations and has, has, knows a lot of people. He came out of a trust company and so he knows a lot of contacts there. And so he helps us with, with both our messaging in the material that we put out and you know, just keeping communication lines open with the investors to take some of that off of me. Now, are you, are you paying these people or are they more paid with equity? You know, it's a combination. Uh, we, we do both. You know, I, I'm a big believer in aligning interest. You know, I, I want my interests aligned with the investors, but I want my team's interests aligned with the firm as well. You know, so if, if we do something and we knock it out of the park, everybody should benefit from that. And, and the way we have it structured, they do. Yeah. So, I mean, one of our first hires was a virtual assistant and I highly recommend it for, for everybody. I don't care if you still have a W-2 job or, or not. And then in the early days, you know, and still we see it now is joint ventures or partnerships as a way to bring people to kind of, you know, split the responsibilities without having to pay someone. And then as the portfolio grows, we're taking the asset management fees from the portfolio to hire more people. So we were able to hire a full-time asset manager, for example, someone who manages a construction. They come all out of the asset management fees. I think early on, I always thought, oh, asset management fee is another profit center for me. I'll just go and, yeah. you know, buy more beer with it, you know, but now- <laughs> I'm now so, same like, exact way. I'm same yeah, exact you know? way, Michael. Yeah. I don't really get any of our asset management fee. That just goes right. to paying the guys, the team, I should That's say. That's right. Yeah. That's right. But in the beginning, sometimes you have to give away equity just to get, you know, to get the job done. And, uh, and that's kind of what we did as well. But the virtual assistant is amazingly powerful. Every time you do any administrative or repetitive, you have someone there to handle that. Yeah, I've, I've, heard, I've heard you talk about that. I know I've heard Neil talk about it. He, uh, he's a big fan. I just I, I haven't gotten there yet, but uh, it's, it's on the list. Oh, you, you somehow got it done anyway, Bruce. So that's, 
That's uh, that's pretty. We're cool. not what done. Are- you know, I, I could give you another goal, but then you would uh, you probably make a face and think it's not going to happen until our next uh, podcast. Oh, maybe. now I do. Now I absolutely <laughs> think it's going to happen. You know, shoot, Bruce is getting it done. What's kind of your major challenge right now, right now? You know, the major challenge right now is is probably lenders. The uh, it's not investor capital. You know, when 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 COVID first hit and there was so much uncertainty, at this point we've received just hundreds of emails of, from people. This is what we're doing. This is the steps we're taking. This is how we're cleaning. And and to me, my investors expect us to do the basics. Of course, of course, we're doing all of that. I didn't want to send out a note that I could have copied from. Zoe's or something, you know, <laughs> like, it just didn't make sense. And so my note basically said, Hey, you know, aside from the human impact of this, this is a great environment for us. You know, we, we are designed for this. We have a strong balance sheet. We have great experience. We know how to do turnaround deals. We love distressed acquisitions. A lot of the um, competitors just left the field. So let's go buy some stuff. Who's in? That's basically what our letter said. And Within 30 minutes, I had you know probably seven or ten of my guys that are in other deals respond and said, "Find us some stuff to buy." You know, and mm-hmm. so it's funny because with investments, so many times when it's time to buy, people are scared to, and you know that's not how it works in retail. If you if your favorite store is selling a, a, a nice looking shirt for 70 percent off, you go grab it. You know, and, and um, when when the investment market's you know 20 or 30 percent off, not that it is right now, but let's say it is. People are too scared and you have to think on your own and not be too emotional about these things. But, you know, I, I think this is, you know, certainly an unpredictable environment that we're in. No, nobody really knows how it's going to play out. But, you know, the markets that we're in, we, we, they opened up earlier than, I, I mean, office in Dallas, but we don't own any assets here anymore. But um, they opened up earlier than Dallas did. And we saw a fairly rapid uh, rehiring. We were at historically low unemployment going into this. I don't think we're going to get back to that level anytime soon. So don't misinterpret but my, what I'm saying. But I do think there's going to be a sizable recovery fairly quickly once they get this thing under control. And it sounds like they're going to have some vaccines or, or some sorts of treatment probably by the end of the year. That's what a lot of people are hoping for and working towards. There was an announcement today even where the government's paying AstraZeneca, I think a billion and a half to go ahead and produce one of their vaccines, you know, hundred million doses of it. They're not even selected as the final vaccine, but they're, they're having them pre-produce them so that they're ready to go for the one that they, so we're not running scared, but our biggest impediment right now. So it's, it's not finding deals that are out there. It's not uh, the investors. Uh, some people may be scared or, or limited on their liquidity right now because of change in their own economic situation. But I think Really, the, the limiting factor has been the lending environment because so many of our deals we buy, they're not uh, stabilized deals. And so uh, we, we'll refinance into agency debt, but we're buying on bridge. And so I would argue probably two thirds of the bridge market went on hold because they were borrowing money to turn around and lend it and they keep the spread. That's kind of how it works. And so all of their lines were put on hold. And so a lot of people just uh, are out of the market. The borrowing costs went way up in the bridge market and and the availability went down. And so that's happening there on a stabilized deal in the agency market. As you know, and I know you've talked about, they increase the requirements on escrows and things like that that just they dampen the uh the price you can pay for a deal so that that's been i guess the biggest hurdle yeah it's it's interesting some people say hey, is now a good time to get started or get into investing in multifamily and and you just said earlier you know when it's time to buy everybody's fleeing and they're panicked and si- sitting in a dark corner sucking their thumbs you know and it's it's like you know it's actually never 
really a perfect time to buy. Three months ago, it wasn't a good time to buy because it was so hot. Oh, I should wait till it cooled down. Well, now it's cooled down and everyone's scared. Now I'm not going to buy either. So wait a minute. So at what point between now and the last three months, was it a good time? Was it a day? Was it an hour? Like, you know, it says it proves a point. It's always now. Now is always the time, you know? Yeah, I agree. I mean, it, you never know when the perfect time to buy is until a couple of years after that. Yeah, time, that's you know? right. That would have been no perfect. Bell that goes off to tell you this. You know, in fact, I remember I, I was on a panel a couple of years ago at, at one of the multifamily conferences uh, here in Dallas. And uh, uh, people in the room raised their hand. They're like, how, how do you get deals? Because, you know, we'll, we'll bid on 30 or 40 deals and we don't even hear back from the broker. And, you know, it's largely because they're all bidding on the same stabilized deals. But I, I guarantee you those people that were in that room are not bidding on deals now when they could get them, you know, because they're scared. And so I think, um, you know, the advice would be just be conservative in, in your underwriting. I mean, some of the mistakes that I so often see, someone will assume four or 5% rent growth in the first year. Well, you know, the problem with that is the math. Uh, if you really think about the math of, yeah, you may be able to increase your, your new rents by four or 5%. But it's not going to apply to your entire rent roll because those they don't renew all when you buy it, right? You know they renew throughout the year, and so to actually achieve a, a year one four or five percent rent increase means you have to be raising rents probably ten plus percent, and that's uncommon, you know. And so I don't know. I, I would just you know we, we rarely uh, model hardly any rent growth. We're just really in line with CPI, just to be conservative. Yeah. So uh, absolutely right. It's always a time to get started, but you have to modify your underwriting sometimes like we are now. We're building in escrows. We're more conserved in the right. rent growth, things of that nature. It's The game still goes on. It's just uh, slightly different than it was a few months ago. Now, you've amassed kind of a, a really impressive portfolio. What are some of your goals for the next one to three years? You know, Deep we... sigh. <laughs> well, you know, it's 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 changing because of, you know, we just the environment, you don't really know exactly what's what's happening. But um we we would like to be somewhere between 2 and 3,000 units in probably three different markets within that period of time. I've already identified the other markets. Uh we had actually just gotten back from a field trip, so to speak, with the whole team. We'd spent a, a number of days up in one of the markets, really digging in, meeting with all the brokers driving the areas that we were interested in. So we really got a feel for what side of the street we wanted to be on, what side of the street we didn't want to be on, all that, all those nuances that you can't tell from Google Maps. And we were just about to buy some assets there, but luckily, well, not luckily, but this happened before we did that. So the good news is we weren't cut off from our assets uh, during this you know, brand new acquisitions. But so we, we, I guess, pivoted to some extent and just said, you know what, let's fill out the portfolio and the markets we're in, go ahead and get our, our fill of doors there since we know it and we can get there in, in a vehicle as opposed to a plane. And so that's what we've done. But, but you know, over the, I look out a few years from now and, and you know, we want to be in more markets to the extent that we're in the one we're in. You know, when I first started, uh, you know, they, they teach you diversification and all of that uh, in, in the equity markets. And I thought initially I would own, you know, one or two assets in a bunch of different markets and spread it all around. I don't think that's the right way to think about it. I, I would much prefer at this point to have a concentrated position in, in a handful of markets because the benefits are just tremendous. You know, every broker in that town, they know exactly what you're looking for. 
you know, I, I would say we, we value very highly our broker relationships. Uh, it's so important. You know, we, people know us in the markets we're in and they'll, you know, sometimes an owner will try to go around a broker that has an agreement with them and, and work a deal. And there's, we would never do that just because we, you know, we plan to buy a dozen deals from that, that broker. Uh, in fact, we, we were working on a deal that we couldn't get done. The seller was just too difficult, but the seller had actually told the brokers he wasn't going to pay them his original agreement. We went to the, the, the deal was rich enough for us and the brokers we saw were just killing themselves to try to get it to work. We, we put money on the closing statement for them out of our pocket just to try to keep them whole. And you know, you do that for a broker and they never forget it. And, that goes and all, that you goes are the all. first call when there's That's a deal. It goes a long, long way. So what I'm hearing you say is in about three years, you want to double the size of your portfolio. Have you thought I'd about- I'd like to double it in the next 12 months. Yeah, yeah. So have you thought about <laughs> 10Xing what you have right now? So you have 1,600 units, 16,000 units. What, what would that look like? <laughs> It would be great, you know. I, I, we <laughs> we just fly private between them all, I guess. But, That's right. Uh, like, uh, yeah, like our, our friend Brian Burke, sure. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, some of the guys on on our on our mastermind, um, you know, it, it, I, I listen to, to podcasts still myself, and and uh, you know, I was talking to you just before this started, but you know, one of those has kind of inspired me, and you know, you, you can get comfortable, but uh, you know, I'm not at the point where I'm ready to stop growing, but I I'm thinking, you know the plans that I had may not have been aggressive enough. I should, I should be thinking about 10 xing this business. There's no real limit to doing so other than just having sufficient investors to do it. The deals are out there. You know, there, there's just a, a huge demand for it. I mean, if you look at the other alternatives, you know, I already kind of talked about the equity market, super volatile. Everybody loses sleep over it, arguably at, at a fairly high valuation currently on most any metric you look at, especially if you're looking at it in the context of, nobody's actually working right now or employed, you know, not fully at least. Um, so that's concerning. The bond market doesn't really pay investors anything. You look at a bunch of you know, real estate investments and, you know, I don't want to be in hospitality. I don't want to be in retail. I don't want to be in office. Multifamily was really the best asset class to be in during this whole completely unpredictable crisis. And for a lot of reasons, I think it's the number one asset class you know, that deserves my attention. And so, you know, you have all these baby boomers that have accumulated assets, they need to get a return on their money. And, and you look at the options, and there aren't that many good options. And so, you know, we can offer, we underwrite everything for income, our, our goal is to, yeah, we turn it around that first year or two. But after that, it's just to hold it and, and distribute money to partners. And that's very tax efficient distribution. And, you know, you're talking about probably eight to 12% or more. And uh, that's, you know, equivalent, you know, a 10% yield that, that you're not having to pay tax on is equivalent to maybe a 14 in the public markets, you know, because um, it's just much more tax efficient. So I think, I think there's, there's really no limiting factor to it. I don't think you know, generationally, if we look what's going on with the millennials, they prefer to rent. So, you know, I don't think apartments are going away. And, and frankly, the people that were wanting to own that just went through a, a long period of unemployment or depleted savings, you know, they, they may not be able to own for a while. And so, it extends their timeline as a renter. So I think, I think we're very well positioned in that regard. I also think that we've spent a lot of time talking about business cycle and when's the right time to buy. Well, you know, if you kind of click up a level and look at a macroeconomic context, what's going on, 
the U.S. dollar has lost, I think, 17 to 18% of its purchasing power every 10 years consistently. That's dramatic. You know, the, the, the Fed talks about a, an inflation goal of 2 to 3%. That's their target stated as far as what they're wanting to do. That destroys your wealth over a period of time and just steals from you the purchasing power. And so one of the best ways to protect against that is to be in income producing property. And, and so that's one of the reasons that irrespective of where we are in the, in the real estate cycle, I'm still interested in multifamily as long as we've underwritten it conservatively because it helps protect me against that. Yeah, that's right. And this is, this is, I agree with this is why multifamily is, is a good time. And as a passive investor, it's no, no better place to put your, your money uh, than multifamily right now. So, Hey, Bruce, how can people connect with you? Yeah, uh, they can connect with, and actually, um, we prepared a piece for this that we'll give out for free. It's titled uh, Confessions of a Hedge Fund Manager. Uh, I love why it. Why multifamily is a better bet than the stock market. So we go through some of the things that we're talking about here in more detail and give some numbers and things like that. It's not too deep. It's not, but you know, we'll, we'll certainly return, send that to you if you reach out to us. But uh, you can uh, go to our website at elkhornpartners.com. It's E-L-K-H-O-R-N partners.com. And there's a um, you know, request info form that you can fill out or, or you're welcome to email me even directly, bruce at elkhornpartners.com. Bruce, great to have you on the show finally. Great to see you, Michael. I'm glad we finally did it. All right. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Bruce Frazier of Elkhorn Capital Partners. Great guy. Unbelievable success story. And if you want to have a similar success story and uh, you value mentorship and are able to invest in your education and you want to accelerate your results and check out our mentoring program that has evolved considerably since Bruce has come apart and we've uh, we've helped dozens of people do their first deals and also quit their jobs, check that out at themichaelblank.com forward slash mentor. Schedule a free strategy session call with us and see if mentoring is right for you. So check that out at themichaelblank.com forward slash mentor. Thanks so much. Appreciate you guys. Catch you next time. Thanks for listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Blanc. For more free podcasts, articles, and videos, go to themichaelblanc.com. There, you can also download the free ebook, The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. Till next time.